Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Stephen Gundry, who is I think best known for his plant paradox book, which is in a massive bestseller, really changed the mind of many people's views on eating plants as, or an all our plant-based diet is really the ultimate form of uh, a healthy diet. So, uh, he had a, when I interviewed him for that book and now he's written a new book. It's called the energy paradox, which is a, uh, a newer version of this that uh, aligns on the uh, principles of improving your energy, specifically at a molecular level. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks again for having me back. Good to see you. Yeah. 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 So uh, I, I'm curious to just, I think your book is it like one of the the recent five or 10 years, the best selling book in health? It's way up there. That's true. Yeah, it was, uh, I think, in the top 10 of the last 10 years. So when that came out. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, congratulations. That's quite Thanks. an experience. So uh, what what catalyzed you now to write this new book? You know, it's funny. It actually started with me uh, driving to uh, do a PBS uh, promotional event to earn some money for PBS in Orange County, California. And a uh, call came in on my speaker that the host who was going to interview me or, and do the program called in a young uh, millennial. And she uh, unfortunately wasn't gonna make it in that day because she just didn't have it in her to, mm. uh, to do the program. And uh, I was figuring, wow, you know, how are we going to get through this? And we did. But uh, those kind of words stuck with me. And mm -hmm. I go, gee whiz, you know, a 30 something doesn't have it in them to, to get into work. And I decided I wasn't going to write a book about energy. But I realized in my practice, over 50, 60 percent of people who see me initially for autoimmune diseases, you name it, um, are suffering from fatigue and malaise. And you remember that diagnostic code uh, when you were practicing. It's just an epidemic, particularly with COVID, as, as you well know. So your book is really uh, quite aligned with most of what my thinking is. I would say probably 90%, but there's about 10% where we don't are not in agreement alignment. I definitely want to focus on that later in this. I want to review what we're in a deep agreement with. Uh, okay. Last week, uh, I haven't traveled much since the epidemic, only twice. And last week, I was came back from California, and the driver who took me to the airport uh, was. Uh, I know he had problems putting the bag into the car, and he, he had problems. With, he just was post uh, a stent surgery, mm. and uh, had obviously visceral adiposity and just didn't have a clue about what was causing the disease because doctors never told him. So literally in that, and the reason for this backstory is that I had like maybe two or three minutes to tell him that what to do to change his life and add 10 to 15 years. And so he doesn't die next month or next year from heart disease or diabetes or cancer. So one of the, the most profoundly important principles and what I shared with him was the time restricted eating, which you're a huge advocate of. So I want you to dive into that. 
and uh, first, because I mean, if you can do simple things like that, that doesn't cost you anything, not a penny, not a dime, it's just free, just restricting your calories. I think that's the most powerful intervention you could possibly do, or one of the most powerful, there's a variety of others, but this is one of the big ones. Yeah, I agree. In fact, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, believe it or not, I was probably one of the first people to write about time-restricted eating in my first book, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution in 2000. Congratulations. What year was that? 2006. Whoa, Whoa. you were way ahead of the curve. That is amazing. Can I tell a funny story? Actually, it had an entire chapter in that book devoted to time-restricted eating. Hmm. And my editor at Random House at the time said, this is so crazy that I'm not going to let you do this. And I go, she said, this is <laughs> a true story. And I, and I said, look, I'm telling you, I've been doing this now for four years and I've been using it on my patients and it's not crazy. And here's the research. And she said, no, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you two pages to make your case. I'm throwing the rest of the chapter away. So I got two pages and I saw her at the Mind Body Green Symposium last year, last summer before COVID. And she came up to me, uh, Rachel, ja uh, Rachel Jackson. And she said, mm -hmm. you were right. I apologize. You, you're, you weren't crazy. You weren't nuts. Everybody now knows, you know, so anyhow. So let's get to the subject. You're right. One of the most important things that people can do for free regardless of what else they do, is limit the amount of time that they start eating, whether that's in the morning or noon or whenever, and finish eating, and whether that's at night or during the day, I don't care. But the more we can limit that time period to within a reasonable time period, I think six to eight hours is a very reasonable goal, uh, that will actually give people more energy. It will actually reduce the rush hour on mitochondria. And you and I both agree that mitochondrial flexibility, metabolic flexibility is probably the underlying problem in the vast majority of diseases that, that we see. And I wrote the book to try and make it easy. Uh, and what I, what I see in my practice is that a lot of people try this and they go, okay, uh, I usually eat breakfast at seven and tomorrow, starting tomorrow, I'm going to start eating breakfast, break fast at noon. And they fall flat on their faces. They get headaches. They get hungry. They don't think right. They have no energy. And they go, this isn't for me. And that's because, as you and I know, they have a high insulin level, they're insulin resistant, and they can't, as you and I talk about, use fat that they have stored as an energy source because they're prevented from getting to that. So in the book, what I do is over a six-week period, I gently hold people's hands one hour at a time and get them used to eating a shorter and shorter time window. It's very much like learning a new exercise program. Um, I couldn't run a marathon, you know, you know, out the bat, but I can train and get there. So that's, a, that's what we do. Yeah. I just love how you position it so that, and provide them with a, a, loads of warning that they, that most people will not be able to do this, as you just mentioned, and they have to gradually ease themselves into it. 
But once you get into some of the specifics with respect to the timing, because interestingly, the time-restricted eating uh, fits into the circadian rhythm alignment because they're they're connected. And yep. so there's a, the specifics about when you're doing the time-restricted eating. Yeah, it, there, one of the things that, you know, Sachin Panda from the Salk Institute has shown very well in, in both animal and human studies is that part of all of this is retraining your circadian rhythm. And interestingly enough, the gut microbiome circadian rhythm. And the more we can realign our circadian rhythms, uh, the better everything's going to function, including mitochondrial uh, function. Absolutely. So the, I think one of the keys we're thinking, well, actually, before we get there, and I'll go to what I was focusing on earlier, but the uh, time of the time-restricted eating is typically six to eight hours is your goal. Uh, you do yeah. an extreme version of that. The only one I've seen do a more extreme version personally is Seem uh, Lan, uh, who does a one meal a day, which... I don't recommend unless you're young and healthy like Seam. But when you get to our age, I'm questioning the value, not the value, but the long-term strategy that you've chosen. And I'd like to dialogue with you on it because you, for the winter months, I think it's six months of the year, you're doing a two-hour eating window, which is yeah. really profound. During the week. Doing, oh, yeah, I've been, week. Do, I've been okay. doing it for now. This is my 21st year of doing it. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. 20. You are so far ahead of the curve. Matt, how did you figure that out so early? You know, I, as you and I both know, we, we go down these deep rabbit holes and, it, you know, you start following some crazy, you know, literature and you go, wow, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to try it on myself. And, you know, and so you're just reading studies and that, and yeah, you just reading out. studies. And, you know, I congratulate you and I've congratulated you in the past that you'll, you know, you'll follow a crazy idea. And to your credit and hopefully to my credit, a lot of times those crazy ideas turn out to be not as good as we thought. But we tried it on ourselves and, you know, we report and, you know, Bill O'Reilly used to say, I report, you decide. Yeah, so I think one of the keys that I've learned in life is this cycling. So I didn't realize that you were taking the weekends off from the, the two-hour time restriction. Yeah. So that, that, that because I it just continuous for six months just seems to be not a good strategy to operate. No, I, I, I agree with you. And actually, very interesting, um, there are studies uh, looking at time-restricted eating in humans and trying to convince people to stay with even a six hour time restricted window is very difficult. Mm -hmm. There was a couple of really cool human studies that I cite in the book that show if you give people the weekend off and ask them to moderate their behavior over the weekend, that they'll be able to stick for five days to a six hour eating window during the week. And when I saw those studies, and I had been using that on myself for now 21 years, I went, Duh, of, of course, you know, that makes so much sense. So that's incorporated in the book. Yeah. Uh, but, you're, but you're right. So the eat one meal a day or the OMAD diet, uh, I think you've got to break it up. Um, I don't do it all year round, but I break it up on the weekends. And the reason I do that is so I won't go mad. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I like that. Yeah, you're you're good. You're good with those clever aphorisms. That's good. So, uh, 
I think the other thing I'd like you to share with the timing, well, is with just to how much time you need to put in there of that in that window. So there's a, it's, you really need to, at least in my perspective, to make that window pretty far away from your bedtime. So you can yes. have a six hour reading window, but if you're ending your reading window like an hour before you get go to bed, not a good idea. No, that's really dumb. Um, in fact, I think if if I was going to design this uh, for myself, I'd probably you know start eating about ten o'clock in the morning and finish mm -hmm. up at about three or four o'clock in the mm -hmm. afternoon. But quite frankly, that's very impractical. In fact, when I was writing the book, my editor and I went, you know, this is how we should really do it. And then I said, and she said there's no way that anybody's going to do this. And, yeah. I said, I, and I said, I absolutely agree. So let me tell you what you know I do and I have my patients do. But like I talked about in the longevity paradox, my previous bestseller is it's really important to stop eating, put anything in your mouth at least three hours before bedtime for a couple of really important reasons. Number one, you've got to undergo mitochondrial repair during the night. You mm -hmm. have to undergo brain cleaning during the night from the lymphatic circulation. And what my mother used to teach me long ago is you can't go swimming for an hour after you eat because you'll get cramps and die. And there was a little bit of truth to that wives tale because digestion takes huge amounts of blood flow. And if you're eating, all that blood flow is heading down to your gut when it should actually be going up to your brain to clean your brain. And you know, Dale Bredesen has said the same thing. I'll say the same thing. I think it's really important that you've got to stop eating at least three hours, preferably four hours before you go to bed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, my my window is actually... Uh even more severe, I think the one you said most people have problems with, it's typically nine to two. Nine to Which two, would be great. Three. Yeah, that I think I daily, you know, I, I live alone, so I don't have any social challenges, uh, but most people would have if they're living with someone. So. Yeah, it, my wife and I both work. And so, you know, basically the only time we see each other is, is in the evening. And mm -hmm. so for us, for my mm -hmm. two hour window, um, I tend to eat from, you know, five to seven or six to eight. And, you know, that's my eating window because that's when we socialize. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's an important thing. Cause it's not just the food you're eating, the timing and all these other hacks. I mean, there's a, a load of benefit from social interaction. And if you ignore <laughs> that, you are asking for trouble. Very true. Sure. Yeah. So uh, just one last thing before we leave this topic, because it's, it, it's just mind blowing every time I review this and I'm, I'd like to get hear your sharing of it with Sachin Panda's data on the rats and, and, and the difference between them eating the same stupid standard American diet equivalent. Uh, and the only variable was the changing of the timing, which just seems to me an enormous support for you know, implementing this intervention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and he showed really in actually in rats and in humans, if you could actually get humans to reduce their eating window to 12 hours. Now, that, that sounds like a very long time. But the average with his app, he's actually shown that the average American is eating for 16 hours a day. And you think about that. Um, he's 90 percent of people yeah. eat. Eat more than 12 hours. Yeah, eat more, more than 12 hours, yeah. up, up to 16 hours a day. 
Yeah, the only time they're not eating is when they're sleeping. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And you know, it's it's, I mean, it's mind-boggling. But remember, our, as you you say and I say, our big food, big agriculture has convinced us that this is the proper way to eat, the only way to eat, and big, these big businesses are really good for disease. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. So uh, another area where we're completely aligned with, and I was surprised to see it in there because not many, even natural medicine physicians understand or adopt this. And you did. So congratulations, kudos to you. What's uh, EMFs, electromagnetic fields, and you clearly warn people about their dangers and with some good support. And then, so I want you to talk about that. And then a subset of that, because sunlight is EMF, you not a, a pathogenic dangerous one, but a beneficial one that you absolutely need regular exposure to, exposure to if you're going to hope to acquire optimal health. So why don't you discuss those two topics? Yeah. And, and, you know, again, kudos to you for really putting people's attention on the dangers of EMF. And you and I actually have, I have a patient who you know, and I know, and who's I think mitigated uh, some of the effects of EMF with with fairly high dose uh, magnesium. Mm -hmm. I've recently found some evidence that sesame oil is also pretty useful in mitigating against EMF. The other thing I think is fascinating is speaking of sunlight, uh, plants uh, obviously have to have sunlight, but they mitigate against the effects of sunlight by manufacturing melatonin. Mm -hmm. Now, melatonin, uh, we actually use melatonin to manufacture ATP, fun fact, but melatonin in plants can be consumed to add melatonin to our diet. And melatonin is probably the greatest mitochondrial antioxidant that's ever been, ever been found. So plants need sunlight, but they don't like it any more than we do the bad rays of sunlight. And so melatonin and eating melatonin is a, is a very interesting way of mitigating against the bad effects of EMF and of sunlight in general. Now, as, as I talk about in the book, I used to think that people who said that they were sensitive to these, you know, invisible rays were <laughs> out there on the lunatic fringe, um, lasers from space. But the longer I've been doing this, I've had just some fantastic experiences with very credible people who, when we mitigated EMF, even one patient was profoundly affected by her husband's AICD, a defibrillator, which was communicating with a satellite, his EKG. And as soon as it went into him, uh, she couldn't sleep next to him, had migraine headaches. And we finally turned off his transmitter in his uh, AICD. It was like that, uh, all of this went away. So it, these people are canaries in a coal mine. And, you know, we have to believe it. Uh, you know, I, one of my offices is here in Santa Barbara and Santa Barbara has, you know, stopped any 5G from coming into our community. And I wish other people, people would do it too. 
Yeah, well, that's it's, there's a, it's a lot more complex than just eliminating 5G. I mean, the 4G, the 3G, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. all, all these other radio frequencies. Your cell phone is likely the biggest issue for most people. And I agree. You, can't, you cannot go into a public place without getting irradiated. Bombarded. Yeah, so there's a lot of other strategies. But thank you for mentioning melatonin. That's a powerful intervention, too, for COVID-19. It seems to be. There's a lot of good literature on that. Uh, I, I would, wouldn't be the only thing I would use, but it, it's not going to hurt. And, and it works because it lowers oxidative stress, which is something yes. I want to discuss in dialogue with you. Because I think it, that may be, at least in my current view, the most uh, uh, significant variable to control for to improve mitochondrial function. But, but for, I think there's a better ways than taking antioxidants. I mean, I it agree. certainly will help. I so agree. That, that, that's what I want to dialogue a bit. A bit. And uh, I think we can tangent to that now. So the, the premise of your book, the found is these three L's, right? The lectins or what are the other two? Because I, I misplaced my notes. So I just <laughs> trying to remember from memory. Well, so the, the thing we've got to get rid of is, is lectins primarily. Um, we've got leaky gut. And that's, that's the, it, leaky gut. That, that's, that's the big L. And one of the things that's fascinating, and let's talk about COVID for a second. You know, all these people with pre-existing conditions who are set up for COVID, what I think we're now understanding is that a pre-existing condition, by definition from Hippocrates, is that you have leaky gut as the underlying reason that you have a pre-existing condition. And part of the book is saying, guess what? Uh, if you have a pre-existing condition, and believe it or not, fatigue and tiredness are pre-existing conditions, you have leaky gut. And when you have leaky gut, which you would ask me 20 years ago, I would have told you it was pseudoscience, but now we have sophisticated tests, uh, and thanks to Dr. Fasano from Harvard, who who found how lectins actually cause leaky gut, and gluten is a lectin. Mm -hmm. uh, we now, when these particles come across the wall of our gut, that they do, 80% of our immune system is lining our gut. And if we think of our immune system as our soldiers that are looking for interloopers, there's a war going on in our gut and now elsewhere. And so, so much of our tiredness is actually because of chronic inflammation and inflammation costs huge amounts of energy. And like I tell my patients, if your immune system is distracted down to your leaky gut, number one, it's not gonna be available to you when trouble comes in through your nose or mouth. And number two, your immune system is so hyperactivated that when it sees something that might not be all that important, that it goes crazy and you get a cytokine storm that of course is one of the major lethal consequences in our particular um, environment in the Western uh, diet. Yes, indeed. So you got the, the three L's that you mentioned were the lectins, the leaky gut, and what was the third L? The third L, now, and now you've got me uh, distracted. Oh, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> All right, so it's, it's there. Let's just know it's there. It's in the book. And I yeah. just, you know, as I said, my notes got misplaced right before I realized we were starting this, this uh, interview. So, but I, I wanted to, I'm not bring it up there to embarrass you or anything, but I wanted to say that I think you missed the fourth L. And I think it may be the most important one that's not mentioned in the book. And Let's that is it. linoleic acid, LA. Yeah. 
that's that's the top of of my next book, which comes out next year. Uh, I'm just passionate about this, and and it's the biggest thing I have missed, and I think most of us have missed. I mean, you've been out there for a long time, for the more than I have, and I just think we know that these vegetable oils are a problem, but we don't know how bad they are. So, and and just as a consequence, and it's it's it, the, the 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 poisons in the dose, right? So, I mean, a right, exactly, bit, right? It's not yeah, a problem. when you have in large amounts, it's just huge. Right. And, you know, I, I talk in the book uh, about the Goldilocks effect. Um, and linoleic acid is an essential uh, fatty acid. We have to have it. It actually is important for our mitochondrial membrane function. But you're right. None is bad. Some is good. And a lot is really bad. And we've tip these scales like in so many other things. So you're right. Uh, I'll, I'll completely agree with you. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater, it is essential for making our inner and outer mitochondrial membranes. But too much of it, I totally agree. Yeah. With you. Well, here's the challenge, though. It's, it's almost physiologically impossible to not get enough if you're eating food. If True. you're on TPN, total parental nutrition, you could... Uh, not you could run to a deficiency if they don't put some in yeah they actually have to put it in correct yeah but what they're putting now is actually should have a black skull and bones on it or a red one uh that was constructed from soybean it was like soybean oil 70 percent la was just crazy and which was killing see see the 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 devil's in the the details and the dose that most of us 150 years ago were getting was about two grams a day maybe no two percent so if you're eating a lot of calories four thousand might be five six seven grams but people today are getting 30, 40, 50, 60 grams. And the, the average person is getting 20. The, the typical person is getting five to 600% more than they need. So it's, it's impossible not to get enough unless you're not eating food. It's in everything. It's in everything. Sure. And, and if you eliminate all vegetables, it's a good step. But, you know, so there's, you, I just don't perceive uh, an appreciation of the danger of these vegetable oils in, in your dialogue about it. Well, I'll talk more about it, but, and I actually do in the book talk about, um, again, the devils in the details that we've got far too much of this in our diet, um, primarily from, you know, vegetable oils being used in everything. You know, these are the way they're used now. You know, I talk about Franken fats and Franken foods, and um, that's one of the things we've got to get out of our diet. Yeah, I was really impressed because if you're in nutrition, there's no way you wouldn't understand, realize, and appreciate that trans fat is bad for you at all. I mean, that's there's no one that's going to argue that. That's even conventional medicine's get it. But when the, you look at studies that compare trans fat to high linoleic acid, even animal-based fat, you know, like from lard, which is relatively high in LA, the LA diets are worse than the trans fat. It's like, who would have known? And it's because of the very issue you're going with the mitochondrial health, because the LA gets integrated into cardiolipin, which is that in the inner mitochondrial membrane. And it shouldn't have that much. I mean, in some ways, olive oil is better too. And that's why I want to dialogue next is about the olive oil, because you're such a huge fan of olive oil. I'll I'll let you, why why don't we go there now? Because tell us why you're so um, widely endorsing olive oil. Well, you've got good reasons for it. Well, yeah. Years ago, I had the pleasure of speaking with the president of the Italian Olive Oil Council, who is actually an MD. And he says, look, don't 
don't get me wrong, oleic acid is just an interesting fat. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he, he says, it, you know, it's, it's a C18, it's, it's okay. But yeah. it's what this fat is carrying in terms of number one, the polyphenols that it carries. And number two, which is probably a revelation in my book, it's a great source of melatonin. And so it's, it's a vehicle to get polyphenols and melatonin into you. And there is some interesting arguments that I make in the energy paradox that the Mediterranean diet and its benefits may be that a lot of these things that we thought were great sources of polyphenol like red wine and resveratrol and the French paradox may actually be in the melatonin content. Uh, the Italians eat huge amounts of mushrooms. Mushrooms are a great source of melatonin. And um, so I think he was absolutely right. There's nothing particularly phenomenal about oleic acid. Uh, it is actually our major storage fat that we use in storage in our fat globules, but it's to deliver polyphenols and melatonin into your mouth. And the only purpose of food is to get olive oil in your mouth. I'll say it again. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that's what you're fond of say. So what is the dose you typically do or what, what is the range of dose you re recommend? Well, so, you know, th there's a lot of really good studies, uh, particularly the Predimed study uh, out of Spain, dosing people with a liter of olive oil per week and actually looking at their improvement in cardiovascular health, in prevention of heart disease, in improving cognitive function, and actually some very interesting research in lessening cancer risk. And so these guys, five-year study, handed out a liter at the clinic. They had to bring in the empty bottle. And as I show in the energy paradox, you can find that when these people were compared to a low fat Mediterranean diet, their ceramide levels, uh, which is, boy, if you wanted, there's a great paper, look it up called death by ceramides. Ceramides are one of the ways we take fructose yeah, that's prevalent in almost all of our food now, including our fruits that's been bred for fructose. We make a fat called ceramides that actually prompt insulin resistance. And when people see the mischief that ceramides bring, uh, they'll be scared. But olive oil in the study dramatically reduced ceramides. And uh, so why not? Well, I'll, I'll tell you my concern, <laughs> because it has nearly 15 grams of linoleic acid, which is probably 300% more than most people should ever think about taking in a day. That's 145 cc's of olive oil a day, which is about 15 grams. That's a lot of linoleic acid. So, I mean, there may be other benefits, but unless you look at the holistic perspective, I think that's going to be an issue. And I'll tell you why, because the linoleic acid gets integrated in cardiolipin and it, it is rapidly susceptible to this oxidative stressors. And, and then the, you develop these, they turn into oxalams, which is oxidative linoleic acid metabolites, which are highly destructive. It's, it's an advanced lip oxidation end product that just decimates your health. Not only your mitochondria, your stem cells, your cell membranes, your protein, your DNA. It's just, I think it's probably one of the most pernicious influences in 
and, and pretty much the, the primary culprit in why we get sick. The, it, if you look at the epidemiolo epidemiological studies going back a century and a half, and, the, and you look at the correlations of LA and disease, it's just so incredible. But, so that's why I, I, that's, I'm concerned with the, you know, a hot. Yes. 145 if, cc's, that's a lot of olive oil. If you limit your eating window, you actually stop that process from happening, which is really miraculous, number one. And number two, shameless plug for myself, my Gundry MD high polyphenol olive oil, you only need a tablespoon a day to get the equivalent polyphenols of a liter of olive oil a week. Well, that is a radical, rat, super radical upgrade because a tablespoon yeah. would have acceptable limits. And I think that's the upper limit is a tablespoon. I wouldn't recommend more. I'll tell you what, I'll send you some. No, it's okay. I just, I just, I really <laughs> am seeking to get my LA content less than five grams a day. And the, and I love eggs and eggs have a lot, but so I'm doing a special experiment with my chickens feeding no LA and, oh, and cool. having it analyzed in, in the, uh, in the lab. So it's still, it's still in running, you know, so I haven't finished it, but yeah, it's, that is congratulations. That's good. Cause I can't, I can't, that would be a dangerous recommendation i think of that much olive oil but so it's the polyphenols that that yeah, that makes a lot of sense and i'm so glad you're doing that that is great thanks yeah that is beyond awesome um and surprising i did not know that um all right so um yeah i guess as long as long as it's in the in that window you're going to be good but i so i'm just curious you know, because I've I've been following it not as long as you. I mean, I probably woke up to it maybe five or six years ago, and it is the time restricted eating and what you suggest as a way to limit the damage from uh, LA excessive consumption. But the I, the mechanism must be reduce oxidative stress. But I, because of the is it activated RF two or some of these other antioxidants pathways to to mitigate the damage or what was your speculation how it works. Well, I think that's one of them. I think the other thing that's really fascinating is that the, the time-restricted eating will really promote mitogenesis and mitophagy. And so I think um, you know, limiting, the, limiting a time window really changes everything. And, oh, I, you're right. and I, you know, I think the most exciting experiment uh, that I talk about in the energy paradox was done by DeCapo at the NIH. And, uh, and if you my I fought my editor over this, I said, look, you know, I know this is really geeky stuff, but it's so important that it's got to be in here. And let me just summarize. So um, as you probably know, in longevity research, there were two large rhesus monkey studies on calorie restriction, one from the University of Wisconsin and one from the National Institutes of Aging, which is part of the NIH. And they both found that uh, calorie restriction, about 30% calorie restriction, extended health span, but only one of the two showed that it expended, extended lifespan. And there was a lot of argument about why that was. One was a higher protein diet, one was a higher fat diet. Both of them had about 35% carbohydrates in their diet. So a researcher by the name of Dr. DeCapo said, I'm going to solve the issue. I think you guys probably missed the point. And I think it's really important. Time-restricted animals, time-restricted eating animals, 
because they have less to eat, eat all their food very rapidly when it's put out for them. And the Capo said, you know what? I bet you it's not because they're eating less food. I bet you it's because they have a much longer period of time fasting every day. So he designed this experiment using the UW protocol and using the NIH protocol and divided mice into those protocols. Well, one group of mice got a full day's food and it was they could eat 24 hours a day. They eat mostly at night. The other two groups of mice, one was calorie restricted, one got the UW one, one got the NIH one. They put out their food at three o'clock in the afternoon. The third group of mice had all the food they wanted, but it was put out at three o'clock in the afternoon. And what they found was it didn't matter whether it was a high sugar one, a high fat one, a high protein one. If you restricted the amount of time that they ate, that's what made all the difference in the world. And in terms of what we're talking about, the folks who ate all day, the mice had no metabolic flexibility whatsoever. They couldn't shift between eating, using sugar and fat. But the time-restricted mice and the calorie-restricted mice had metabolic flexibility. And I, you know, again, it's a beautiful study that says, sadly, in the end, maybe it's not so much what you're eating, but how long you're eating it that makes a difference. And when you're eating and, it. And when you're eating it, correct. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I think you're getting most of the benefits of calorie restriction, which is well documented. In, correct. In studies, yeah. So, so the calorie restricted guys live 30% longer. It agreed with almost everything. And, no, I'll do it. But the guys who had time restricted still lived 11% longer than the regular guys, which, you know, 11% longer, that's 10 years in our, life, our lifespan. But more importantly, the time restricted guys had no amyloid formation and they had dramatically less cancer as their cause of death. So it's like, you know, this is doable. And my job in the energy paradox is to teach people, okay, here's how to do it. Don't jump in in the deep end because you're going to fail. And you and I know why they're going to fail. And, you know, I've been doing this now for 20 years with patients. And so I've, I've figured out, you know, where the pitfalls are. Okay. So I want to tangent to another topic in the fats, which is the saturated fat, and which there's so much confusion on in the media and the medical profession, honestly. So it's, it's hard. You don't really take a hard stance in the book, but you just make a few comments in different places, but it seems like you're opposed to saturated fat. Correct me if I'm wrong, or could you just, just share with us what your current position is? No, I'm not opposed to saturated fat. Okay, so I, I misread it. But I, I think you got to know your saturated fats. And I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of short and medium chain fatty acids. Um, for multiple reasons, I've been extolling the virtues of MCT oil um, since the plant paradox. Uh, I think you saturated fats have other benefits, particularly, interestingly enough, the saturated fats in cheeses um, may be one of the unsung heroes in longevity that I think needs more attention. and. Um, we can we can go down that rabbit hole if you want, but I think cheese probably has gotten a uh, a bad rap in in longevity circles, and and I think I've given it a bad rap, quite frankly. 
And, and why did you give it a bad rep initially and what's caused you to change it? Great question. Um, I take care of a huge number of people who carry the ApoE4 um, mutation, which is, quote, the Alzheimer's mutation. And I noticed early on that cheese uh, really elevated uh, not only small, dense LDLs, but also elevated for most of my patients, uh, oxidized LDL. And if you like the cholesterol theory of heart disease, which I don't particularly like, but uh, then you probably don't want to oxidize your uh, small, uh, dense LDLs. I, I, I don't, sorry to interrupt you, but I don't think that the, the cholesterol theory integrates oxidative LDL. If they did, then I think a lot of people wouldn't be so opposed to it, but they, they fail to appreciate that fact. There's the oxidized LDL is the issue. Right. And I, that's what I mean. Uh, I don't like the traditional cholesterol theory okay. of heart disease. On the other hand, I think oxidized LDO has an interesting place. Um, but what is interesting when I've kind of separated out my patients into having them use sheep cheese and goat cheese, uh, I found dramatic different results. And I initially attributed it to the fact that sheep and goat have casein A2 and not casein A1. And I think casein A1 is a pretty bad actor. Uh, so I said, well, I'm going to start letting my apple E4s have sheep and goat cheese, but in moderation. And when I did that, I didn't see this oxidized uh, LDL like I did mm. with, you know, so... And uh, I'm working on my, on my next book, but cheese is, uh, sheep and goat cheese is going to get a, not only a pass, but I'm going to actually ask people to eat it. So I'm curious what you think the mechanism is, because casein is a protein. Correct. Uh, and, and so it's an, a, an autoimmune reaction of some sort that increases Correct. stress? I, I just Correct. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we now... Um, about 90% of people uh, with autoimmune disease, and my practice is about 70% autoimmune disease mm -hmm. patients who haven't done well on other programs. And about 90% of them respond extremely well to the bread and butter plant paradox program. But about 10% of them have frustrated me and frustrated them. And when we started really looking at uh, good sophisticated ways of seeing food sensitivities, a large number of these people definitely are sensitive to both casein A1 and unfortunately casein A2. And sadly, a lot of them are sensitive to both egg white and egg yolk and other surprising things. But the fundamental thing is if we repair their leaky gut, and it may take a, a year to do it, once we repair their leaky gut, we find that their immune system becomes tolerant to these things that previously they were intolerant to. And last year I gave a paper at the American Heart Association Lifestyle and Epidemiology meeting on 10 patients with celiac disease, gluten intolerance, who over and huge reactivities to all the components of wheat, including the various components of gluten. After a year, nine out of 10 of them had sealed their leaky gut, their celiac was gone. And all of them lost their sensitivity to all the components of gluten. Now, I'm not saying that you can go back and eat it, but we've selectively reintroduced things that people have been sensitive to slowly. 
and uh, they don't react to it anymore. So I think you can retrain the immune system once you get a good microbiome, which we talk about in the book, how to do that, and once you seal a leaky gut. So interesting. So the, um, the casein and these other proteins that, that trigger the, the autoimmune response contribute to the leaky gut, which then, then it contributes to increased oxidation. Oxidation, correct. Okay, that, I didn't see, I didn't understand that link. That makes sense now. Uh, okay. All right. Oh so, yeah, don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I believe it or not, and, and this is probably gonna get on the internet. I have people with total cholesterol of 500 with LDL. Oh yeah, yeah, that, 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 there was a, there's a, a condition called lean metabolics or lean, lean hyper responders, which, and Paul Saladino is one of those, the carnivore guy, his, his total cholesterol is over 500. Maybe his LDL is over 500. I don't know. He's really well, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And he has no risk for heart disease, though. None. Right. And, you know, then these folks, as long as we do things right, they don't oxidize their LDL. Right. They, no. They, they, don't have, they don't have any evidence of inflammation on their vessel walls that we can measure. Yeah. They just don't oxidize it. So it's like, okay. Um, and people go, wait a minute. You know, you're a cardiologist and heart surgeon. And you're allowing this person to have an LDL of 300. You know, shame on you. You, <laughs> you, you bad, evil person. All right. So let's go to another area of controversy, uh, especially you and Paul disagree on this, uh, is the advocation or the recommendation from your perspective of limiting the meat uh, to certain uh, doses. Uh, yeah. for, and the, it seems the primary concern is the, the, its consequence on the gut microbiome. Is that, is that reflect your position? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good uh, place to start. Um, I think you, you really, when you go to a carnivore diet, and I have nothing against the carnivore diet as an elimination diet. In fact, when Paul was first on my podcast, he credited me as being the father of the carnivore diet because all plants are evil. And I went, oh, please don't do that to me. Um, <laughs> I don't want yeah, that. It'll credit. ruin your credit in your community. That's right. But uh, so I, yeah, I mean, you're a former, many people, I didn't include this in the intro, but you were a former vegetarian, Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was a professor at Loma Linda for Linda. most of my career. So um, getting back to, to Paul and me, I think one of the mistakes that people make uh, in uh, particularly a keto diet um, where they've eliminated uh, fiber as a possibility, um, you actually starve your gut microbiome from making butyrate. The other, I think, worrisome part about a carnivore diet is you tend to make more hydrogen sulfide. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smell. And I talk about how it is really one of the important postbiotics, a gasotransmitter. But again, we get the Goldilocks rule. A, not any hydrogen sulfide is actually really bad for you. Some is really good for you, really good for mitochondrial function, but a lot is really toxic. And there's some evidence with carnivore diets that you produce too much hydrogen sulfide. Now, I also understand the argument that if we eat a lot of gristle and a lot of mucin, uh, basically nose to tail, that you can make butyrate by fermenting protein-based um, animal uh, ingredients. And yeah, I think you can. But I think 
if you look at all the super, super long folks, one of the things they have is really great production of butyrate. Mm -hmm. And butyrate, that short chain fatty acid, does so much good for mitochondria, I, I, I can't even begin to, to tell you. Well, I do in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's another justification for the rec recommendation of butter, which is probably the largest dietary source of butyric acid, I think. Yeah, it, it is. I have almost eight ounces a day of butter. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's not a whole lot of butyrate in, uh, in butter. It's definitely there. But you uh, and others have to eat a lot of butter to compensate for what? Just eating some prebiotic fiber will generate. Yeah, yeah. There's no question. I think people who are do, doing a no carb diet is a, is a pretty radical mistake. That carbs need to be cycled in. There's no question. It's just like doing time restricted eating for two hours a day for it, indefinitely. That's not a good idea. It's a good strategy intermittently, but continuously is, is a prescription for disaster. And the microbiome would certainly be one consequence. So yeah. I've, yeah, you need to get uh, you know 100 150 grams of fiber of uh, carbs, which you know if they're healthy carbs, they have fiber regularly. Not yep. every day. Not every day. <laughs> I think I think you and I would agree about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's cycle, you cycle in and out. Because if you go into keto continuously, it just you get counter regulatory reactions that actually limit the benefit of that, and it actually becomes paradoxically uh, less effective. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you can really, uh, chronic ketosis will really oh. increase re insulin resistance, number mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And number two, will actually make you lose muscle mass by, by default. And, you know, you kind of learned that, others have learned that. And again, mm -hmm. I, I, kudos to you when you you try something and you go wait a minute uh, yeah, well, wrong <laughs> yeah. yeah i tried it don't do this you know a professional driver on a closed course right yeah yeah so i made a lot of mistakes and actually maybe we can talk about one of them now because i i was influenced by ron rosedale who really is an unbelievable clinician with respect to identifying the dangers of insulin resistance back in the 90s i mean yeah pulling that out. And then he transitioned to the dangers of mTOR activation through protein. So I kind of believe what he said, and I didn't really review the literature really aggressively like I should have. So I did it myself and it was just a disaster, an absolute disaster. I had sarcopenia on steroids as a result of doing that because the thinking the lower, the better, and you need protein, especially if you're working out. True. So, yeah. So what, what's your position on mTOR activation? Well, um, when, you, when I, the only way we can actually kind of measure the effect of, of mTOR long-term is insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. Mm -hmm. And if you look, and I, I take care of a lot of super old people, 95 and above. I have a lot of 105-year-old patients that I study. And these guys all have very low insulin-like growth factors. Um, and it depends on the lab, but in, in the two labs we use, they tend to run you know, 50 to 70 just to throw that out. Uh, and we've tried experiments with patients with uh, really reducing uh, their animal protein. And we've found, and replacing it with plant-based protein, I might add. I'm not taking protein away their uh, insulin-like growth factors uh, will drop 50 to 70 points in a matter of months. 
And I, I think that's pretty interesting. I think the other thing that's interesting that I mentioned in the book is that exercise, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of branch chain amino acids, but exercise will actually change your gut microbiome to eat branch chain amino acids before they get into you. And branch chain amino acids are one of the biggest stimulators of mTOR. And that's why if you're building muscle and you're a bodybuilder, you're gulping branch chain amino acids all the time. So I, you know, I think, I think probably Paul Saladino, who exercises and also time restricts eating, uh, I have a feeling, and he's got pretty good IGF-1s. Uh, I think he's got those tricks around that he can tolerate a very high protein, animal protein diet. I think long-term, the other thing that I've written about in all my books is that beef, lamb, and pork have a sugar molecule called NU5G, mm -hmm. uh, GC, sorry. And fish, chicken, and us have NU5AC. And we, many people, make an autoantibody to NU5GC that we attack our own blood vessels if we are exposed to beef, lamb, and pork. Uh, I learned this in xenotransplantation. It was one of the reasons still that it's difficult to put a pig heart into a human being. You are a really good example of, of someone who's not practicing FTI, which is failure to implement, except with respect to putting your cell phone in airplane mode. Uh, but no, you're a good example of implementing what you suggest, and you're doing pretty good for your age. And and obviously, this is an area of interest in you, energy production, but also longevity and optimal health. So what would you say is the I mean, we talked about time-restricted eating. I'm sure that would be your, but any other additional one or two powerful strategies that you would recommend to improve energy and increase your longevity? Well, I think the more you eat for your microbiome, the better you're going to do. And Mm -hmm. the, the godfather of fitness, Jack LaLanne, mm -hmm. always used to say, if it tastes good, spit it out. Now, my, my advisors say, don't say that because mm -hmm. people are going to think that you're telling people to eat stuff that doesn't taste good. That's not what he was saying. Mm -hmm. He was actually saying, if you eat for them, they'll take care of you. I mean, 99% of all our genes are non-human. They're bacterial, viral, fungal. And the longer we study the microbiome and what I call the holobiome, the more we realize that our fate is actually tied up with how happy we keep that organ inside of us, our microbiome. And the happier we keep our microbiome, the less leaky gut we have. In longevity studies, death comes as the wall of your gut becomes leakier and leakier. Mm -hmm. And so eat for them. And I think Jacqueline was right about that. Um, Time-restricted eating is great. The other thing that I think is really important is that people seem to think that you've got to go exercise continuously for a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour every day for perfect health. And that's actually not right. The idea that we were supposed to walk 10,000 steps a day was made up by a Japanese pedometer company to sell pedometers. There's actually no 
evidence that we need to do that. So in the book, in the energy paradox, I break little exercise snacks, energy snacks, exercise snacks. And so many of us get hungry um, out of boredom. And if we just break exercise routines into small segments, even walking up and down stairs for a minute, maybe as effective as walking 10 minutes uh, on a level surface. Doing a plank while you're watching TV for a minute is a phenomenal exercise. And my favorite is when you're brushing your teeth, do deep knee bends, do squats. You got a minute twice a day, you're gonna get two minutes of deep knee bends in. It's just great little ways to have little bits of exercise. And when you work your muscle groups, big muscle groups particularly, they make, as you know, myokines. And myokines may be the most exciting you know, hormones and cytokines mm -hmm. that have ever been discovered. They grow brain cells, for goodness sakes. So, and, and they, yeah, and they help mitochondria. So why not? Yeah, I could agree. I, I like the aura ring for that perspective because it not only tells you how many steps you took in a day, but it tells you when it shows you a graph and gives you an indication of how many hours of the day you didn't do anything. So, you know, how do you, you were stagnant and just stayed there. Yeah. What, what did you do that for? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you're right. You got to spread it out. It's just you know, not an hour in the gym. It's not a good idea. So thanks so much for all your good work and for writing the book, The Energy Paradox. Uh, it, this interview will coincide with the publication. It's, it will have already been published or it's going to be out there in a day or two. So uh, we try to hook it up that way and we were able to do that. So I'm glad we, we greatly appreciate it. Out. And uh, yeah, so yeah. And your, I guess your main website name is uh, Dr. Gundry MD. Uh, doc, uh, GundryMD.com or DrGundry.com, uh, both places. Okay, good. And I have the Dr. Gundry podcast, and I will be seeing you shortly. That's right. Uh, my, our podcast for my new book, which is about coronavirus, will not be out till next month. So uh, the following month, and so it'll be a bit delayed, of course. All right. Well, thanks again, and right. keep up the good work. All right. Great to see you as usual. And we'll see you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks.